my dear friends. Welcome to the Brightly Human Podcast. I'm your host, July Westdale. This month and in August, we are doing a Hot Summer Nights series, and by we, I mean me, solo, (laughs) but also these poets that I have brought into this conversation. And Hot Summer Nights really tackles the embodied and the thirst and the erotic and the desire that I see as being in conversation with the cerebral and the spiritual and the transcendental that we talked about in May and June, the Breaking Into series. You do not need to have listened to the previous podcast in order to enjoy these poems of thirst. However, today, your listening might be more pleasurably enhanced, at least from a curiosity standpoint. If you go back through and you listen to the episode that came out on June 8th, that deals with the poem Elegance by Linda Gregg. And the reason being that we're going to look at two poems today by Jack Gilbert from his collection, The Dance Most of All. And the reason it might be helpful to look at or to listen to the Linda Gregg poem, although certainly not mandatory, is because The Dance Most of All is dedicated to Linda Gregg. For a good long while, I've been very interested and curious about how to explore the relationship between Linda Gregg and Jack Gilbert, who are both gone now, without unconsensually projecting my own things onto them and their relationship. And I think the best way to do that is to talk about their work individually and respectfully and gesture to the ways in which it was in conversation with the other's work as well as in conversation with the other human. But you do not need to know about this Linda Gregg poem in order to enjoy how very, very beautiful and very erotic these Jack Gilbert poems are today. So I'm going to read two poems by Jack Gilbert. One is Dreaming at the Ballet and the other is Amen. And I apologize in advance because I am at the tail end of a head cold and will be drinking lots of water and maybe clearing my throat in this episode. And I'm going to start with Dreaming at the Ballet because in the book, it comes first. It is um, followed by Amen. And if you have not read The Dance Most of All or any Jack Gilbert, he's truly a delight and I think has a very lyric and lush relationship with poetry that speaks in gestures to pleasure in a way that's quite different from Mohakal's Lowering the Gaze, which we looked at last week. So we'll look at both of these poems, we'll talk about them, and we'll talk about how to harness the energy of these poems and maybe from a craft perspective in our own writing should we decide we want to encapsulate some of our own July and August thirst. I 
hope you can hear the sounds of my clinking iced coffee. Okay, dreaming at the ballet. The truth is, goddesses are lousy in bed. They will do anything, it's true. And the skin is beautifully cared for, but they have no sense of it. They are all manner and amazing technique. I lie with them thinking of your foolish excess, of you panting and sweating, and your eyes after. So, <laughs> dreaming at the ballet. Short poem. This is one I'm looking at on the page in a book rather than on the Poetry Foundation website. And if you don't have access to this book, that's okay. Remember, you can always still be here and appreciate without seeing it on the page. But I'll let you know that the first three lines are end-stopped. The truth is goddesses are lousy in bed and stop. They will do anything, it's true, and stop. And the skin is beautifully cared for, and stop. <clears throat> and then we get into the rest of the poem, the last five lines, which are all enjammed. They, but they have no sense of it. They are, line break, all manner and amazing technique, stop. I lie with them thinking of your, line break, foolish excess of you panting, line break, and sweating in your eyes after. What I like to talk to my poetry students about is that one of the many points of wisdom in using <clears throat> end-stopped lines, particularly in the beginning of a poem, is to create a sense of orientation and a poem's logic, saying, this is the truth of this world, or this is the speaker making an attempt to, to make a truth here. And so the first three lines that are end-stopped are these kind of statements of truth or a way of the speaker engaging with, these are the things that I am saying are true. And in fact, this poem starts with, the truth is. The truth is goddesses are lousy in bed. That is one statement of fact. They will do anything. It's true. That is another statement of fact. And the skin is beautifully cared for. Another statement of fact. And then we get this volta, and that's when the form breaks, and we have these in-jam lines for the rest of the poem. But they have no sense of it. They are all manner and amazing technique. I lie with them, thinking of your foolish excess, of you panting and sweating, and your eyes after. So the but is the volta. It's the moment of, of pivot, the hinge on which the door of this poem opens. And it also occurs to me in reading this that... You could say, I sleep with them thinking of your foolish excess, but instead it is written, I lie with them. After saying, here are the things that are true. It's true. The truth is, I lie with them. Meaning, there is no truth with them. And with myself, with them. And... The construction of this poem, because it is very small, it is extremely emphasized and very, very concise. 
And because we, when we have moments of rupture where the form breaks, that also becomes emphasized. And so we see that happening with the, the part of this poem, but they have no sense of it. They are all manner and amazing technique. This is the moment where the speaker is saying to the reader or to the you, I'm lying. And despite these things that we think might be true, that I said are true, in fact, are actually not because there is a different kind of truth that is possible here. And I think that the construction of the poem is very tight, and I think that it also, the lines in and of themselves both individually mean and then mean as part of a whole. So for example, after that Volta, but they have no sense of it, they are break. They have no sense of it. They are all manner and amazing technique. I lie with them thinking of your foolish excess of you panting and sweating in your eyes after. And sweating in your eyes after is its own line. Foolish excess of you panting is its own line. I lie with them thinking of your is its own line. All manner and amazing technique is its own line which lives on its own line without a subject, right? Because it's like an abstraction. It's like it lives disembodied, which further distances the speaker from goddesses. And I find this title very curious, Dreaming at the Ballet, right? Titles can really do so much for us if we let them. I think that this might be a little bit of a controversial statement because not everybody agrees with me and some people feel very cavalier about their titling process, but I feel like it's a great opportunity to contextualize the poem sort of pre-context, but also to do some work around challenging, juxtaposing, enhancing, ideating, or any kind of verbing about the subject matter of the poem. So we have talked about this poem as an entity in and of itself without talking about the title. So now we talk about the title, which is actually the first thing we would read, but is the last thing we're talking about because I wanted to hold up the sense and logic of this poem to the title of Dreaming at the Ballet. I don't, I I can't know what Jack Gilbert meant by titling this poem, but I could venture to guess a couple of things. I could guess, well, going to the ballet seems like a thing that you do with maybe someone you're on a date with or a spouse or a group of friends, right? It's like a, an entertainment sort of cultural activity. So it could be going to the ballet with the you of this poem and seeing the beauty and grace of the ballerina's and maybe even being caught sort of rhapsodizing there and this poem is a response to but that's me taking a lot of liberties um or projecting dreaming at the ballet also there's an interpretation a dance and a piece of art is an interpretation of something is a representation of something is a conversation it isn't a a truth per se it is a narrative so Even one step removed from that is dreaming about this sort of prolonged artistic dream. And this would be the moment if we were in a classroom together where I would open this question up because I don't have an answer. I mean, I 
I can't say that anything is a truth, right? To say what, what extra meaning does this idea of dreaming bring into play in this poem that is so much about here are the things that are the truth and here's actually the way in which the truth for me is quite different or that there are more important things than what we think of when we think of the truth. And dreaming is not necessarily the truth. It's a, it's a kind of fantasy. And maybe that's what we're in conversation with here, the fantasy versus the reality. <clears throat> and this next poem I want to read, and this is kind of an atypical thing I'm doing today, um, where I'm really focusing on dreaming at the ballet, but I wanted to read this poem, Amen, which comes after dreaming at the ballet, in part to inform dreaming at the ballet and to talk about it within context and also maybe to give a little bit more landscape of what I feel like this collection of poems is really about. And you don't necessarily need to know, although maybe you're interested as I am in the lives of poets whose work I admire, that Linda Gregg and Jack Gilbert were married and they got divorced and they wrote poems to each other, about each other, about their marriage, about their divorce. Um, and that became kind of a matter of public record in that regard. And to have a book that is dedicated to her that says, For Linda Gregg, you know, it immediately is this, this collection that is a presentation of a dedication to. So all, all of those poems, in a sense, are variations on a theme in and of themselves, and this theme is this relationship with this human who is also a poet. So I'm just going to read this poem, not go too terribly into detail of it because I would like us to just sit with the pleasure of it, um, and we can talk a little bit about what that can mean for our own work and writing about desire. And then I will send you off into your own hot nights with hopes that you are also engaging in crush art and poems of the body, or at least just listening pleasurably to the world. This poem is called Amen. There's no one I'll touch who isn't a killer of bugs or squirrels or convicts by the proxy of law. But some creatures have the counter virtue of softness. Decades, my days have begun with fur. Petting a dog 17 years, two cats 12, the remaining cat two more. Daughter of the cat who died and is buried under a rock, I also pet in the dark to hear it purr. I asked science, is there a way I can hold a human heart to my ear and harmonize with the sky implicit in its voice? Science said no, but isn't dry eyes cool? Intimacy is the surmounting of physical limitations by physical means, whether fingertips or vowels or the earth eyes of a dog. And when a movie says men don't need it, I know it was written by a lumberjack trying to pretend he doesn't apologize on his knees to the stumps of trees. The softest of softnesses in my life has been a rainforest for a mouth, how it feels in certain moments, such as every time my wife grasps the hardest part of me and does this sexy thing with her tongue, speaks. 
This is an atypical way to structure today's podcast because we aren't going to go too terribly into the weeds of Amen, but rather, I think, to show this landscape of what desire and intimacy comes from from the poet's mouth and the poet's poet wife's mouth, right? Insofar as it is, um, in this, the speaker defines what intimacy is. He says, Intimacy is the surmounting of physical limitations by physical means. Whether the fingertips or vowels or the earth eyes of a dog. And when movie says men don't need it, I know it was written by a lumberjack trying to pretend he doesn't apologize on his knees to stumps of trees. There's also something to be said here about this commentary on this is something that is accessible despite and maybe in conversation with the fact that the social truth, right, in the same way that the social truth of the last poem is that there's this perfection of goddesses. The social truth of like men not needing intimacy is erroneous. And here is proof. So my dear friends, I hope that you can take some of the joys and pleasures and lessons from our friend Jack Gilbert this week and engage in your own writing. If you subscribe to the newsletter, you will also get a writing prompt for the week that is on this theme. And I hope that it brings to you much pleasure in whatever ways you are open to it. As always, I am sending you many blessings and much love.